Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Hi, Margie. Hey, Claire. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. I feel like my brain has really woken up this morning with lots of spelling and um, trying to work out how you pronounce words, some of which we're going to be reading today. Yeah, certainly one of our poems, it's an Anne Shepherd poem, has a reference to a place in Scotland that I had never heard of, never mind, was able to pronounce. So we've so far come up with a blank. So we'd really love to hear. We're going to give it a go. We've looked at various pronunciation guides and we're going to give it our best shot. But if you know better and you can help us out with that one, we'd love to hear from you. Wait till it comes. It's going to be the second poem, but we can't wait for you to tell us how we should be saying it. Before we get there, we're going to look at a poem this morning by Natalie Thomas called Early April Heatwave. And then we've got the joy of another of our Unbound Commissions. Um, This one is by Elspeth Wilson. Yeah, well, I get us started on the poem, the first poem, I should say. It's called Early April Heatwave by Natalie Thomas. They're twisting the swings in the park next door, metal coils against wood, the ache echoes in the dry air. It sounds like deep August. Everyone outside in the sun. We take a drive towards leafless woodland. Picnic in the boot, windows down, radio on. Sunlight spills through stripped, craggy branches. Has it ever been this hot in April? Cross-legged on the gingham rug, sucking slices of cucumber. Our eating is dazzling. But the trees... They are grey little chicken bones, the waste of last night's winter. You pour out the pims, slosh in strawberries, and God, have you ever seen such big British strawberries? And so early, they're wet and fresh, but the trees, the trees, I can't stop looking at the trees. I love the last line of that poem. It feels like it's in contrast to the rest of it in some way. And what you can't see is that the last line stands on its own. So it's in four line stanzas. And that that last line, the repetition of the words, the trees, I can't stop looking at the trees, stands out on its own. It does though completely encapsulate that moment when you're moving into spring. And first of all, you see snowdrops and bathe and a few crocuses, but the trees still look like sticks, dead sticks. And then suddenly one morning you wake up and there's green on them. It seems to me always to go from brown stick to green tree almost overnight, which I know can't possibly be the case, but it just feels like it does that. And I think this poem really, really reminded me of that feeling. It's funny because this year with the pandemic and being more at home, I think I've paid more attention to what I can see out the window. And I think I've spoken about one tree in particular that I could see out the window, which I really love the shape of. I love the, the branches of when it's undressed. I did really notice it going into leaf this year. And it's beautiful because the greens are so bright when they first come out and then they'll swap to a kind of deeper, darker green like like the world is just now. But for me, this poem is about something different. It's about those rare moments you have too early on in this season. You know, and that question, has it ever been this hot in April? I think the answer is probably, yeah, it has. But it is that sentiment of 
got it, summer. That moment where you suddenly are reminded of summer when it's actually just not summer yet. Yeah, I I don't know what nationality Natalie Thomas is, but I am assuming she's British because of the pims and strawberries and the reference to British strawberries. But I think April is a very fickle month like that. One One of my children has a birthday in April and each year the Facebook memories pop up of what he's done on previous birthdays. And almost without exception, we managed to have cake in the garden. And when he was younger, there's quite a few paddling pool shots on his birthday at the end of April. So reading that, has it ever been this hot in April, made me think, actually, April's usually quite good. I think too, because in the States, you get these really strong seasons, you know, so you'll get spring is is of a particular type. You get rain and it gets warm enough, you know, a bit like summer here. I always say spring in the, in the States feels like summer here. And then summer is just deadly hot. Gorgeous. I love it, but deadly hot. And then autumn, you know, those first crisp days. I remember buying winter clothes or autumn, like going back to school clothes in the summer and just thinking, can't even imagine wanting to put this jumper on or sweater on, I should say, as an American. And then, of course, by autumn, you're so delighted to be able to put on a coat, you know, so just being grateful for the change in scenery and temperature. So I think because they're so embedded, those days when it really comes out of its its usual habit are kind of stuck in my mind. So the feeling of a really hot day in late September, I remember those really strongly. Or the other way around, in like this poem, where you get a really hot day in April or you know, what feels like summer. So in the States, that would be properly hot. And I think we had one a few weeks back where, you know, suddenly in one day, everybody's wearing kind of tank tops and shorts and things. Felt like it should be properly high summer. It's the contrast for me. It's that massive sudden shift to when it shouldn't be. And it's again, I think she does that because, you know, the strawberries feel like they're almost out of season because they're too early. And she's reminding us of where we are with these grey trees. The thing I love about this poem as well is it, it really appeals to all the senses because you get the sounds and then you you get what you can see the sunlight spilling through the, the craggy branches and then we get our taste we get the sucking cucumber and we get the pims and the strawberries and it just feels that we're really immersed in where she is in this poem i love the line our eating is dazzling because you know you've got pims and you've got cucumber and you've got dappled sunlight spilling through craggy branches so any of those things especially the effervescence of pims or the light coming through the tree any of those things could be dazzling but it's their eating the kind of joy in that kind of picnic that is the dazzle which i love but the thing i think is interesting and this is what i wanted to be sure we spoke about was it's such a positive happy bright poem and yet the last couple of lines, you know, she's saying, I'm so taken in with this joy, but I can't stop looking at the trees. And for me, that's the negative. That's the long winter that you've come through that has yet to flower, yet to come into bud. And I think that kind of points to our human nature that even in the brightest, most dazzling gifts of days, we are, by nature, or many of us are, still can't take our eyes off the trees. We're forever looking for the next thing. There's definitely, for me, a little sense of anxiety in that last line. But for me, the question is, why can't she stop looking at the trees? Is it because she's worried that they're not going to bud this year? You know, that this is a false summer, as it were, and we're still stuck in the depth of winter and we haven't come through it and we can't let ourselves relax yet into the strawberries and pims because there's harsh weather to come. You know, the way she describes them, grey little chicken bones, the waste of last night's winter. You know, they're quite dark. Again, she really plays with language because you'd expect it to be the waste of last night's dinner, but it's winter. And the idea that you've got a waste from winter 
was really strong. It's like, it's almost like she's been reborn out of that, or there's something really super, you know, the phoenix of April coming through, and yet the trees are still behind her. But on the whole, I think it, the poem gives you this great joy. You know, I feel like I'm with them, the picnic rug and the slices of cucumbers and that kind of superlative quality of the strawberries, you know, and even though we know there have been April days that hot, it's that kind of feeling of this is the best that we've had, the, the brightest it's been in, in this time of year. It's a real gift. So will we, will we leave that and go on to the story and then see how we can connect them? So this is Elspeth Wilson's piece. At night... The salty air licks its tongue against my window, poking its way in through the gaps like a child missing its front teeth. It whispers, spits its spray, begs me to go out. I can answer its call only once a day, but answer it I do. Come morning, its murmurings have mixed in with the sleep in my eyes, dragging me out of bed. When the sun is preternaturally hot in April and then the cold hits again in May like a slap across the face, I head out to forage for nourishment that goes beyond mere food. On the high street, I dodge other people as if they're ghosts and I am Pac-Man, the gaps between bodies saying as much as blank space on a page. The brightly coloured shops and takeaways that I used to pop into without a second thought are now something to be navigated. My mind drawing up maps, diagrams and charts without me even realising it. A child licks an ice cream, liquid spilling down their chin like fat raindrops. I nip down the venal, away from the clogged arteries of the town and suddenly there is space and sea as far as the horizon, the line between what is sky and what is water, blurred and irrelevant. Down the worn red stone steps to the beach, the kelp crunches under my feet like I am smashing biscuits. The dog is delighted by the sand giving way to seaweed, would gladly stand there, munching away all day if he could. Way out to sea, gannets sharpen themselves to fine point, piercing the water, peppering the waves with white splodges like salt to chips. Would that I could be out there with them, plunging with abandon. But I am back on the beach, where a dead bird washes up. At first, it looks like it could be sleeping. But as the days go by, it goes back to its separate parts. One wing floating in a rock pool, returning to whence it came. Its bluish beak a reminder that nature is not a simple fix. It is the whole and it is its parts. It gives and takes away. From the empty razor shells strewn onto the sand to the frozen peas waiting back in the freezer for my tea. The wind billows through my hair, pushes the smell of the drying kelp up my nostrils. This breeze that has touched so many other bodies, plants and places on its way to me is the sail that keeps me going, helping me remember the difference between the bright yellow of the gorse, gentle paleness of cowslips and the sunshine of ragwort, telling me that there will be other days in other places. And yet I find that day by day, as the seasons slide effortlessly into each other and then shudder backwards again, I do visit different places, 
even if I am in the same geographical location. This piece is sort of mysterious, isn't it? I'm trying to get a sense of the voice here. I've read it a few times already, and I only now am I starting to get a sense of this voice, trying to figure out whether she or he, but let's make it a she in my case, she, what's she doing? Why she's only going out once a day or she can only answer the call once a day. I wondered if that was just written in the circumstances we currently find ourselves in, in the pandemic, when in the early days we were only allowed out once for exercise. And for me, that was reinforced by the descriptions of the shops that she used to pop into without a second thought. But we don't know. We don't know. There could be another reason that we don't know about that the voice is of the this piece is only going out once a day and, and can no longer pop into shops. The description of her being Pac-Man and the gaps between bodies, you know, and that kind of everyone else being ghosts is a really apt description, that idea of running away, or staying away from someone else. It's pretty ingrained now to stay away from other people, so much so that when I come back in the house, having been to the shops or been out and having avoided other people in those circumstances, I naturally then avoid my own children, which is funny. And I find myself sort of skirting or backing away and then thinking, hang on, I'm allowed to be in your, you know, within two feet of you or whatever. But my first instinct is to just back away from other people. I get as well when I'm out in that scenario and I'm approaching someone, say I'm walking along the street, a real sort of still sense of anxiety about whether I'm going to cede the path or step into the road, you know, from the people approaching. I guess I know myself, I'm always going to step in and, and make as much space on the pavement as possible or let someone pass and step into a driveway to let them do that before I carry on my way. But I do sense an anxiety from other people approaching you, wondering how you're going to behave and how you're going to react. It's one of the things I've always wondered about, you know, kind of this kind of social contract that we have before all of this. We all behave in a particular way on the road and we, you know, as we drive. And I know that there are lots of rules around that, but, you know, we do and it saves our lives. And then, you know, one of the things I found particularly unusual in the UK is as a runner or a person walking past or whatever, you know, in the States, you're always on the right hand side. That's just the rule on the road, on the path. That's it. You always, and if you're not on the right hand side, you're in the wrong. But if you see someone coming, you would never swap over. You would always know that you're to be on the right side of that person. But here, I found it remarkable that you just don't know. It should be the left, right? But it isn't. There is no kind of understood way of passing. And then also what's happened in lockdown, you know, the kind of road rage in the parks, you know, people shouting and people getting very angry. But also the way people behave walking three or four abreast without even thinking about it in a time when we're absolutely not allowed to be getting it near anyone. So I get it that, you know, if you're with your kids, they can walk beside you. But I would be saying to them, now, you you know, walk behind me or anytime someone approaches, one of us has to agree to fall back or whatever. But that doesn't happen. But this idea, she strikes me as a really anxious person because she's already, she, when she says, my mind's drawing up maps and diagrams and charts. I don't know about you, but I'm not doing any of those things when I go out. But I do think this was written right at the beginning of lockdown. I think that clue is in going out only only once a day. And I definitely had higher anxiety levels at that point than I do now, partly because we're starting to see progress in terms of number of new cases. And I do still avidly check on the graphs every couple of days just to make sure that that line is moving in the right direction, but not the obsessive way I probably did in the first few weeks. Can we talk about the bird in this piece? Because I find it a bit spooky. So for me, that is there's a lot about that particular part of the story that's really familiar. Having grown up 
in a seaside town, that kelp crunching under my feet, I completely recognised. And then the dog, many's a time you would see a dog on the beach where the sand give way beneath its feet and it would do a hilarious tumble or half fall or accompanied by a yelp. So that was very familiar. And then finding dead birds that have fallen apart and dead crabs with their legs off and dead jellyfish and razor clams that were still had stuff in them but were clearly broken. When I read that, it didn't gross me out necessarily. It just made me think, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's a correct description. I recognise that. But her description of it somehow bothers me because she's stuck on the beach where a dead bird, she wants to be out with the live animals and yet she's stuck on the beach where a dead bird washes up and she goes back to look at it day after day until it's falling apart and there's something about that that makes me wonder whether she's stuck in the kind of decay of things rather than, you know, it it does feel like she's gone out there to get a refresh, you know, and the wind is picking up her hair and she's trying really hard, a bit like the poem, to engage with everything that's happening around her. And yet she's walking over to the spot where the dead bird is every day. If I'd seen a dead bird, I would maybe look at it out of curiosity, but I certainly wouldn't go back to it day after day. I would think, yeah, that's the spot where the dead bird is. I'm going to leave that bit alone. It makes me wonder then maybe about the age of the person in the story. You know, I remember when the children, especially the boys, were little, nothing was a bigger highlight than finding something that was dead to go and look at and stare at and examine and then potentially come back and see if it was still there the next time you were in the park or on the beach or whatever. So it doesn't feel like a child's voice. The descriptions are not childlike. It does feel like a grown up person describing the scene that they're seeing. But there are a few, you know, the Pac-Man reference and the the focus on the ice cream and then this propensity to go back to the dead bird. There are childlike elements about it, for sure. But there's that line that it's bluish beak as a reminder that nature is not a simple fix. Um, And I'm not sure what that means, actually. I think nature is a simple fix. I don't agree with that line. And it may be that you don't like the way it fixes it. I don't know that it could be called anything other than a fix. Because it is what it is. It's like something we don't have power over. It felt to me, though, that the person in this had gone out hoping for a simple fix. And finding the dead bird was not what they were looking for. And that's where that line comes from. I, I guess it's a powerlessness over what will be in some ways. And luckily, we're not so powerless anymore. But I do feel like nature is the ultimate fix. It's just that we don't like the way it fixes things. Yeah, she's referring to what I think of as like, well, nature's going to fix things for all of us. But actually, I don't think it does. Should we read on? Yeah, let's do. Some days, the waves are whipped into frothy meringue peaks, and there's barely any beach at all, the sea having forced the land into retreat. Other days, the beach shows itself off, stretching out for miles into the distance, the pale sand pockmarked with rock pools full of periwinkles and speedy crabs. There are warm days where there are picnics and chatter and games and dogs fighting over balls, and there are cold days where the waves have only the cormorants and oyster catchers with their flashes of orange for company. There are days where I love the beach, want to cover myself in its grains, and there are days where the white noise of the waves echoes the worries crashing against each other in my own head. A sand fly crawls over my foot and I smile, its confident tickling on my skin bringing me back into myself. My allotted time is over, the tide is going out and I am drained too. I scrunch the sand beneath my feet one more time, but I know that it's just because I'm going back inside doesn't mean I'm leaving nature behind. There's no such thing as nature returning. It was already here all along if you chose to look for it. It was there in the eider ducks bobbing to the beat of the breakers, the bladder rack squidging beneath your toes, 
the heron waiting for the swimmers to leave, the mushy banana on your counter, tired after its long journey to you. It was there in the cracks, fighting for survival, sometimes finding it, sometimes not, begging the question whether it's something separate from ourselves after all. And although I have wandered within the same few hundred meters, I have become much more intimately acquainted with both this place specifically and the notion of place. Like an overlooked friend, the one who's been with you so long that their presence feels like breathing. This speech that has seen many versions of myself sustained me without me realizing it. As someone who lives with PTSD and fears disorder, focusing on my surroundings has grounded me like a supercharged version of a breathing exercise. This is nothing so facile as a blessing in disguise, but what I thought was previously a conflicted relationship with the outdoors, too much noise, too much uncertainty, has turned out to be less one-sided than I thought. It has helped me to survive. It has helped me to live. As I walk up to my door, returning to the house feels more like home, a home situated in its wider context. The light on the waves visible from my bedroom window winks at me, the repetition soothing my creases away. At night, the air twists its way around the sides of the windowpane to encircle me in its salty arms, caressing my hair, wicking away sweat from my forehead as the heat wave jitters inside my mind. In its gusty, undulating voice, the wind whispers, there is tomorrow. There will always be a tomorrow. I think for me that this does re-emphasize that this is a piece written in the time that we're living in, that the more references to the allotted time being over, and it certainly feels that this is a, a piece written in the pandemic and written with reference to the pandemic and to the sort of strictures round about us. And I don't know Elspeth, and I don't know how much of it is semi-autobiographical or entirely autobiographical, but there's certainly a sense of that anxiety that is mentioned at the end. There is a sense of anxiety in all the writing, I think. The voice in the piece definitely articulates that she's got a fears disorder, and so it's doubly brave to go out, you know, at the moment. But that said, there is a positivity about it, isn't it? There's a sort of sense of overcoming that fear and flipping it into something that's good and that's sustaining. And, you know, there's a change of perspective on what being outside is and means. Yeah, and that it's not one-sided, as she says, you know, that it's a give and take, that it's also that it feels like, as you say, no matter what she finds there, it's grounding. And I think that very much that idea that you could go to the same place on different days and it look completely different but the fact that it is still there is very grounding in some ways it's almost like you can look at the same painting over and over and take some or poem as we always say a piece you know you can read a piece a dozen times and get a dozen different things from it so if that's what's remarkable for me is that she's recognizing that it's not the constancy that she needs in some ways of what she can see. And maybe it's a searching for that grounding that calls her back to look for the bird day after day. And exactly what you've just described, it looking different, but in a way still being the same, still the same dead bird that was there on day one. And there's no easy fix for it, but that it eventually goes back to the place that gave it gave it up in the first place, you know, that eventually it's coming, becoming part of that. I love that description of the wing in the rock pool, half land, half water base, these seabirds. They need land, but they also live and rely on the water. And I guess maybe that's a great description of herself in this period, right? So I feel very much like that time, the allotted time is the thing that's sustaining her. 
And because she's out there, she's then able to bring it back into her home. Because there's a couple of descriptions. We begin with the air on the window and poking its way through into her bedroom. And then at the end, she's able to see the light on the waves from her bedroom. So it's that connection that she's able to bring right back with her, if that makes sense, and extend it. And I really like the sense and the idea of returning to the house feels more like home. You know, not only is there the comfort and the grounding of being out in nature and being on the beach, but the fact that you have done that then gives you something more when you return back to home. It's a question I've been wondering about lately about that idea of home. And as you know, it's one of my kind of obsessions is to think about the idea of home all the time. But what I found really interesting in the last sort of six months is that I find that the Pentlands, I have an overwhelming sense of feeling at home there in a way that I shouldn't, because I don't know it particularly well. And it's funny because I've always thought of home as a place, you know, that we can identify with walls and a roof and a bed, or at least objects or people. You know, I latterly, lately, I've been thinking of home as people, parents as home, or your siblings as home, um, or your children, in our case, as home. It is a different feeling. There's something about, you know, maybe it's just exhaustion. Maybe I should just put my hand up and say it's just exhaustion and um, post-adrenaline or adrenaline. But, you know, there is definitely parts of those long runs out in the hills when I'm on my own where I suddenly think this feels like home. This feels really familiar in a way that it shouldn't. And I feel at ease in a way that I certainly shouldn't, you know, sort of 10 miles out in the middle of a hill. So it's funny to have that feeling for having, for someone who has spent so much time thinking about what the four walls look like, that there aren't walls at all. And again, I wonder if that's her experience of having been forced herself to go back to the same place over and over again over a period. And that somehow defines her sense of home. It feels familiar in a way that it, I mean, how could you think that the ocean feels familiar? Can you think of anything more vast than the ocean apart from the sky? And yet it feels like that's helping inform her sense of home in a way, which is really hopeful to me. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I still have quite a lot of friends that live back in the town where I grew up. They will post pictures of views of home where I grew up um, regularly and despite it being a stretch of sand, a blue bit of sea and usually a bit of grey sky, I would be fairly confident in recognising it in a lineup of seascapes. I think that's what I get from this piece is that our writer here or our, our voice here in this story would, would be able to do the same having spent so many walks and visits to that particular spot. Well I wonder if what this time will adjust all of our senses of home. You know, and not necessarily to the to the four walls we're stuck in, but the kind of daily walks we take or whatever small paths we're kind of beating out between our front door and somewhere else. It'll be interesting to see. I'm conscious we're trying to sneak in a second poem today. I wonder if we should uh, turn to it and just have a, a quick read through and quick discussion. Summit of Cory Eshehin by Nan Shepherd. But in the climbing ecstasy of thought, ere consummation, ere the final peak, come hours like this, behind the long defile, the steep rock path, alongside which, from under snow caves, sharp corniced, tumble the ice-cold waters. And now, here, at the quarry's summit, no peak, no vision of the blue world, far, unattainable, but this grey plateau, rock-strewn, vast, silent. The dark loch, the toiling crags, the snow. A mountain shut within itself, yet a world, immensity, 
so may the mind achieve, toiling, no vision of the infinite, but a vast, dark and inscrutable sense of its own terror, its own glory and power. I mean, talk about someone who took strength and energy and power from her natural surroundings and someone who feels at home in a particular outdoor space. You can't get any better than Anne Shepherd for that. And you just get the whole power and sense of space and sense of being a little speck on a vast universe. I love that idea that you're not looking, you're not climbing a mountain to look out. You're climbing a mountain to get a sense of its own power. That's definitely not why I'm climbing mountains. I climb because I want to see the view. You know, you're standing on a mountain looking out to see what else you can see. But actually what she's reminding us is that you're you're standing there, you know, because you're in homage in some ways to the, the power and the strength that's underneath you. Or perhaps your own power and strength that got you to the top of it, which is a completely different perspective, I think, than most nature writers have. And certainly those of us who walk the hills probably have. Yeah, I mean, there's a real sense of looking inwards rather than looking outwards and looking inwards in the sense of self-examination as well. It feels a bit like, you know, can I get to the top? What do I need? And how will I feel when I get to the top? And no vision of the blue world, far unattainable, but this plateau, rock strewn and silent. The idea that, you know, we're not climbing for that what we see, we're climbing for what's inside to kind of understand and make use of what we already have or what's already underfoot that already exists, if that makes sense. Because I think it's back to that first poem, isn't it? It's that back to what are we looking out towards? And even in that first poem, you know, we're in the middle of the hottest ever April day looking at the dark trees. And here she's saying, we're not looking out. You know, we're looking at what's here already. We're just examining and making sense of what is already here, which I love but I don't think it's human nature. I think it really encapsulates in this sort of relatively short poem all of the sort of sense that you get from Nan Shepherd's book, The Living Mountain, which is so much loved by all our groups that have um, come across it. You're looking at frost, you're looking at water, you're looking at flora and fauna, you're looking in immense detail at the tiny elements that make up this massive Cairngorm mountain range, which she so loved. And somehow she gives us something deeper than that in the description of it without telling us what that is. She has that magical ability to give us the sense of the thing through the descriptions without having to preach. You feel as a reader that you've almost discovered it for yourself. I always think it's remarkable that uh, the group that last read The Living Mountain that loved it the most are the, a group of men, long-term prisoners, you know, which you would think, you couldn't think of a group that wouldn't want to read Nan Shepherd except that group, but they've loved it. It feels like what we would call now as a kind of mindfulness, you know, that kind of taking stock and paying attention rather than looking outwards. But she's coined it long before it became popular. I'm so glad we managed to squeeze that one in. I think that's just about us for today. Thank you again for letting us be in your ears and we hope to be with you again very soon.